Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 12 through 18 from the English Standard Version. The word of the Lord comes to us saying, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun. And behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight. And what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I've acquired great wisdom surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases in sorrow. You may be seated in the presence of the Lord. Today in our series on Ecclesiastes, I want to talk about this subject, the ineffectiveness of human wisdom. The ineffectiveness of human wisdom. Now, as we proceed to venture through the book of Ecclesiastes, Let me place this disclaimer for you right now. The book of Ecclesiastes, as I said on last week, seems like the only book of the Bible written by a cynic and on Monday morning. (laughs) This book seems like the book that we would write after a weekend of having fun and frivolity and finding ourselves now on Monday morning and having to get back to whatever it is we do for a living. Ecclesiastes can seem a little depressing. Ecclesiastes can seem as if there is no hope in the pursuit of life. But I want you to hang in there. I want you to bear with me. I wanted you to walk through this book with us. And I want you to see what the real point of this book is all about. Because I dare say that some of us that are bold enough to really embrace this and to hear it and to learn it will find that the book of Ecclesiastes opens some doors for us in life that we thought were closed. And so you're going to learn some things in Ecclesiastes. Now... In this text, the author, perhaps Solomon, as we said last week, we, we, we have reason to believe that it's Solomon or someone who was writing uh, as Solomon. The author directs his discussion of the vanity of life to the ideal or the subject of wisdom. He makes a declarative statement about his effort to apply human wisdom to life In general, he passionately describes his effort as a seek and search mission. This was no 
casual thought process. On the contrary, the writer says, and I applied my heart. Listen to that. This means that that Solomon labored at this task. It was not something taken lightly. Think of the things to which you have applied your heart. Some of us applied our hearts to being in love. Some of us applied our hearts on a daily basis to success in our careers. And here Solomon is saying to this seek and this search mission, I applied my heart. I used everything that was in me to try to, endeavor, to, in, in, uh, to seek this endeavor. So I didn't take it lightly. But there are two things that are real important that we mention in this process. And one is the wisdom of which the author speaks is a wisdom that begins in the heart of man and not in the mind of God. How do we know? Notice his starting point. He says, I applied my heart. It is in his heart that he begins. The preacher, teacher here declares in a sense that the source tool of his search is the application of his own heart or his own wisdom. This is important to note because the Bible speaks of the search for God's wisdom as a good thing. But the application of human wisdom leads to folly and failure. Let me explain it like this. How many times have you said to yourself, I know what I'm going to do. I can tell you right now what I'm going to do. I can tell you right now what my ideal is. And you found failure and folly and error in applying your own wisdom. But the Bible says that if you seek the wisdom of God, there is fruitfulness and blessing and grace and mercy all in the wisdom of God. But the preacher here starts in his own heart. In addition, it is important to note that it's a very human thing to apply our own general understanding of how and why things work in the manner in which they do. How many times have you wondered in your life why your best attempt to apply your wisdom or what you think still falls short to some unforeseen dynamic? As human beings, we are scarred by sinful pride. Amen? I know we don't want to say amen on that one, but... But think about it. We are scarred by a sinful pride. We often start with ourselves and what we think we know. What do I really know? What I really know can probably fit on the head of a pin. What I think I know this room may not be big enough to contain it. <laughs> Maybe that's just me. I don't know. But Humans have always sought to understand our world using philosophical thought. And, and social media really brings that out, doesn't it? In fact, 
It's a great place to see that kind of thing in action on social media because we have now what I call social media philosophers. They owe the world some deep thoughts. And now they can have a worldwide audience by just tweeting out their philosophy. They just post something so deep that you need a sonar to find them. It's like, where are you? You know, you are, you are very deep. <laughs> Some things are just so heavy that you wonder, these people have to be carried everywhere they go. They're just so heavy. And so the philosophy, you see it. It is not new. There's nothing new under the sun. Aristotle and Plato didn't have real jobs. <laughs> I often wonder, what did they do for a living? They went down to the corner and they philosophized. (laughs) Can you imagine going to four years of college and you're a philosophy major? Where do you work after that? I'm on the corner philosophizing. (laughs) I don't even know if that's a word, philosophizing, but if it isn't, I just made it up. (laughs) Okay. They, they, so, so, so all of this, all of this, from a dynamic standpoint, all of this is available on social media. It's a place where human wisdom is readily shared and exchanged. So, so, so in this text, Solomon shares two important elements Regarding human wisdom. The first element that he shares is the path of human wisdom. There is a pathway in the pursuit of human wisdom that is clear and defined by Solomon in this text. Let's examine what it's like to live according to human wisdom. Watch this now. First of all, it is an unhappy path. It is an unhappy business, he writes, that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. We cannot hope to find happiness in the application of our own wisdom. Man's wisdom didn't provide him with happiness. He thought about everything and took it to its logical conclusion. And right there, waiting for him, was depression. Imagine what a burden this must be. To take everything to its logical conclusion. And yet, instead of finding the happiness you seek, you become more and more depressed. For example... Consider relationships. When we process our human relationships to their logical conclusion, of course, you can think of moments of joy, but also waiting for you are moments of disappointment. And sometimes human relationships can contain excessive disappointment. Hmm? Oh, come on here, somebody. So ultimately, complete happiness cannot be found in another human being. And I'm saying, amen. 
and I'm saying this for all of our single brothers and sisters and even our married couples, don't think for a moment that complete happiness and complete joy is found just by being in love. In love comes with some burdens, doesn't it? Somebody ought to help me right here. I, I feel there's a couple people know what I'm talking about. It, it comes with some burdens. It, it comes with, with waking up in the morning and, and looking at your spouse. And it comes with them waking up with an attitude for no reason. No reason. No real reason. Just because the sun came up. You irritated. Now, I'm not saying my wife does that. But, you see there? But if she did, my answer would be, why are you so irritated with me? You married me. And she'd be like, I don't know what I was thinking, but I... Now, now, now I, I know by saying that somebody's bubble in here just burst. I know you, you, you were all into relationships, but I'm telling you, man is busy, but our busyness is an unhappy business. Life is so unpredictable that about all we can predict is that in the things of this world, we cannot find true joy. We can't find true joy. Here's the other thing about, about living in the path of human wisdom. It's like chasing the wind. Verse 14 says this. I have seen everything that is done under the sun. I have seen everything that is done under the sun. And behold, all is vanity and a striving after when these words are not coming from someone who is inexperienced at life now this is important to know because there are those in here young enough and inexperienced enough to completely disagree with this author they respond by saying Solomon you don't know what you're talking about life is fun it's great and all is well but remember something about brother Solomon As a king, he had the opportunity to experience and see things the average person could not see. His riches afforded him every experience. He saw the actions of those who would be rulers and kings. He experienced every attempt to please the flesh and he surmised that everything done is like chasing the wind. You can never be satisfied in your desire. The more you get, the more you want. Consider the outspoken unhappiness of some who are very wealthy regarding whether their riches brought them happiness. Many of us have heard stories of those kinds of people and the Wall Street Journal ran an article that highlighted the response of some people surveyed who had a net worth of 20 million dollars or more. I'd say that's comfortably well off. 
Here are some of their responses regarding to the connection between their riches and happiness. So here, here what they say on, on envying wealth. Here's what they said. If we can get people to just a little bit more, be a little bit more informed so they know that getting the 20 million or 200 million won't necessarily bring them all that they hope for. Then maybe they'd concentrate instead on things that would make the world a better place and could help to make them truly happy. Here's one person said this about their wealth and the envy that people have for their position. He says, I feel extremely lucky, but it's hard to get other non-wealthy people to believe it's not more significant than that. The novelty of money has worn off. Now, here's what they say on why the poor should be happy. One respondent said this, nobody has the excuse of lack of money for not being at peace and living in integrity. If they choose to live otherwise, that's their business. Here's what they said on love. One mom writes that the men in her daughter's lives could feel powerless and that their role of a provider has been usurped. Here's what they said about children. Money runs the danger of giving children a perverted view of the world. Adds another, money could mess them up, give them a sense of entitlement, prevent them from developing a strong sense of empathy and compassion. We try to get our kids to do chores, one survey responded complains, but it's hard to get them to mow the lawn when we have a full-time gardener. (laughs) Here's what they said about having a mean, rich father. One respondent said, I've grown up with a father who never wanted to give up control of his business, but kept taunting me with the opportunity to step into his shoes. And his wife said, it has been difficult to feel financially independent when my spouse's parents hold tight control over our children's inheritance. Here's what they said about why the rich aren't smarter. Other people glorify wealth and think that it means the wealthy are smarter, wiser, or more blessed, or some other such crock. Here's what they said about inheriting. Financial freedom can produce anxiety and hesitancy. In my own life, I've been intimidated about my abilities because I inherited money. Here's what they said about friends. Wealth can be a barrier to connecting with other people, writes the spouse of a tech wizard who cashed in to the tune of $80 million. Not feeling you should share some of, your, some of the stressors in your life because the response would be like, yeah, wouldn't I like to have your problems? Then there's this awkwardness of who should pay when we go out to dinner. <laughs> Here's what... Here's what they said about hating the holidays. Robert A. Kenny, one of the study's authors and a partner at Northbridge Advisory Group, says the wealthy dread holidays because they were always expected to give really good presents. Can you imagine getting a $10 subway card 
for somebody who has $80 million, you would be attitudinal. I know you would. <laughs> the pleasure, the seeking of pleasure with the things of this world can truly be like chasing the wind. Now, here's the other thing, according to living in this pathway of human, human wisdom. Living according to human wisdom is completely exasperating. Look at verse 15. What is crooked cannot be made straight. And what is lacking cannot be counted. In other words, I can't count anything I don't have. Think of the exasperation of trying to make something straight that is by nature crooked. Even in our best efforts, there, are, there exist things in this world we just cannot fix. For example, we could have millions of dollars and vow to feed all the hungry children in the world. And just when we think we have it done, another child is born into hunger and poverty. This is why it's folly to think that government in its best efforts can make our country a more fair and equitable place. Over the centuries, governments have tried to ensure fairness by taking from some and giving to those without. What they found is that in their attempt for fairness, the sinfulness of the human condition always becomes an obstacle. Sin always gets in the way. Sin becomes an obstacle. Those who are the givers ultimately always take care of themselves first. The Soviet Union fell because they had a proletariat. They had a class of rich people that that didn't live by the same rules. They didn't live by the everything in common rule. How difficult it is for you and I to admit that there are some things that on our own we cannot fix. Your relationships with your children, you can't fix them by yourself. Your marriage can't be fixed by yourself. Your job dynamics can't be fixed by yourself. Your health, your finances, etc. Some things in our lives are simply beyond our ability to fix by ourselves. I know we think we should be able to fix these things because it seemed like such an easy decision that led to our calamity. So why can't I just make a simple decision to get out of it? It was easy to make the decision to get in it, but I can't just make a simple decision to get out. Why? Here's the reason. In Romans 8 and 20, the word tells us this. For creation, the creation was subjected to futility. Let me tell you, Paul's talking about the effect that sin had on the entire creation. All of creation was subjected to futility because Adam and Eve decided to eat of the fruit of that tree. So creation itself was subjected to futility. What does that mean? It means the earth began to tremble at times. We call it an earthquake. It means that storms began to brew up and come with powerful winds of destructive force 
the whole creation was subjected to futility because of sin. Sin twisted our world into a knot. We are all living in the tangled, in a different part of that tangled mess. My brother and I, Kevin, go fishing every now and then. And when we first started going fishing, he was a way better fisherman and probably is than, still is than I am. And, and I'm not a, uh, as patient of a fisherman as I should be. When you go fishing, you need to have patience. You have to wait. You have to be, be observant. I'm ready for as soon as I put my hook in the water, something ought to bite. You know, I'm like the lady on the YouTube. I ain't got time for this. I'm just <laughs> I want my fish biting right away. And so in hurry, you can get your line tangled up. And when you've ever seen a fisherman with his line tangled, no matter, it seems like no matter what you do, you can spend hours trying to untangle the mess that one hurried cast created. And so that's how life is. We live in this tangled world. Man can't reason his way to happiness. Man can't mathematize his way to answers. Man can't philosophize his way to nirvana on earth. All the knowledge we have about the universe still doesn't answer our basic question. Who am I? We have learned to fly in outer space, but we cannot seem to figure out on our own how to love our neighbor as ourselves. We have learned the intricacies of knowledge, math, science, and all of those great things. But we haven't learned how to, with love in our hearts, say good morning to the person sitting next to us. So we have a question. Who am I? The second thing that this this preacher teacher tells us in this passage is this. He tells us the reason Human wisdom is ineffective. Verse 16, look at it, it says, I said in my heart, I've acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has great experience of wisdom and knowledge. Verse 17, and I applied my heart to know wisdom, to know madness and folly. I perceive this also is but a striving after the wind. But look at verse 18, for in much wisdom is much vexation and he who increases in knowledge or increases knowledge increases sorrow the author here tells us that he has done it all and still in this great encounter with human wisdom and the desire to know madness and folly he still reaches one basic conclusion it's all like chasing the wind After all of his application of the best that humanity has to offer to all life circumstances, true meaning still remains elusive. The attempt to find joy in the pleasures of the flesh is like chasing the wind. The flesh is never satisfied. The attempt to find joy in the possession of great riches still leaves him wanting. The attempt to recognize the superiority of his own wisdom above that of all others, still leaves him unfulfilled in a quest for meaning and understanding of life. Now, the operative question is why? Why don't these things bring us 
the satisfaction we seek. If someone was to give you $20 million with no strings attached, most of us and maybe all of us (laughs) would gladly accept without a second thought, believing in our heart of hearts truly that having that much loot would solve every problem we had. Imagine if Dexter had $20 million. Dexter, Dexter would be shopping at gospelcoalition.com. And <laughs> I mean, he'd be looking sharp every Sunday. And, you know, he, <laughs> he might come in here with a lime green jacket on. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. He wouldn't. But, uh, you know, at $20 million, you become a trendsetter. We would think it would solve every problem. But truthfully, there's a reason why the seeking of satisfaction within ourselves or in the things of this world remains and will always remain an exercise in futility. It's because this man's reason doesn't start with God or take him to God, but it does take him to the certainty of death. And the logical futility of knowledge of the end. No matter what, we cannot by any human reason solve the biggest problem on this earth. Death is the logical outcome of life. Rich people die. Poor people die. Old people die. Young people die. When I get to yours, just say something. Sick people die. Well people die. White people die. Black people die. Brown people die. All people born into this world must deal with the reality of impending death. Human reasoning cannot solve that problem. Human reasoning cannot Figure out a way to avoid the shadow of death. David says it like this. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Everywhere I go, death just kind of hanging around. Everywhere I go, death reminds me that my, your time is coming. When I get up in the morning with a new ache or pain, death is saying, I'm coming for you. I can't solve that problem with my human reasoning. I can't figure out a way how to make my body not hurt sometimes. I can't figure out a way to turn back the clock and and say, I want to recapture the days of my youth. I can't be Ponce de Leon and find the fountain of youth. I can drink all the vitamin water in the world, all all the best water everywhere, and still I'll wake up tomorrow a day older. And a day closer to death. Look at what you don't believe me. Look at this. Genesis 3 and 3 says this. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. 
Romans 5 and 12 says this. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men. Because all sinned. Ezekiel 18 and 4 says this. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father as well as the son of the soul of the son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. We cannot solve death. It is the great unfixable of life. We can try to slow it down. We can hope it does not come unexpectedly. We can join the health club. With all intentions of going every day and still find ourselves stepping closer and closer to death. We cannot by means of human reasoning or wisdom stop death. Now, the preacher has painted again for us a grim pictorial of the human Existence regarding the ineffective nature of human wisdom and reasoning. We are once again brought to this precipice where we realize the vanity or the futility of life. The preacher here gets in our face and confronts us with the truth. That true meaning of life and joy does not reside anywhere within the human heart. This is a grim reality we must all face. Nowhere in our heart is there this true meaning of life. Nowhere in our heart is there this this joy that we need to navigate. Nowhere in our heart, in our own heart, is the answer to this question of death. Yet, if you read this carefully, there is this sense of this passionate hope that resonates from the preacher. While he says all is lost in human ability, notice that he does not say all is lost. Oh, I wish I had one witness here. He says you can't do it on your own, but he doesn't say it can't be done. I wish I had somebody here. And that is because there is one who provides a hope eternal that gives meaning and joy to life. His name is Jesus. Oh, I wish I had some witnesses here. Jesus is true wisdom. Remember, we must read the words of the preacher in Ecclesiastes with a triple focus. One eye on the fall of man. One eye on the words of the preacher, but one eye on Jesus and the cross. Jesus answers the great riddle of life. What do I do with death in Christ? God answers for us what we could not answer for ourselves, how to move from the death that sins brings back to the life in God. Paul says this regarding the wisdom of the cross in 1 Corinthians 18 or 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 18. He says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. It doesn't make sense to them. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. He says, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish 
the wisdom of the world. Verse 21, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Then it gets personal. He says, you Jews want a sign. He said, you Greek philosophers are looking for wisdom. But we preach Watch this now. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And I love how he ends this. He says, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God. If God had any weakness. This is what he's saying. If God had any weak point. It would still be stronger. Than our strongest point. In the cross. Christ faced death. To give us life. And this is why. The hymn writer Isaac Watts. Sat down one day. And as he was no doubt thinking. Of how in his sin he deserved to die. But by a beautiful inspiration of God's grace. Isaac Watts wrote these timeless words. He said alas and did my savior bleed. And did my sovereign die. Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I was it for sins that I had done that he groaned upon the tree amazing pity grace unknown and love beyond degree he says this well might the sun in darkness hide and shut his glories in when Christ the mighty maker died for man the creature's sin And somebody came around later and wrote a refrain that went like this. It said, at the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light and the burden of my heart rolled away. I wish I had somebody here. It was right there by faith. I received my sight and now. Look at somebody and say right now, right now, and now I am happy all the day. It's the cross that makes the difference. It's the cross that fixes the unfixable thing of human life. It's the cross that brings life when death abounds it's the cross that says to us we have a hope of a life that goes beyond this one the bible says that our days of our years are three score and ten by reason of strength four score but what he says those are just the days here i wish i had somebody But there are some more days that are too numerous to count. There are some more days that are coming. It's called eternal life with Jesus Christ, our Savior. 